Hello and welcome to episode 1081 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you and brought to us by our wonderful Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. How are you doing? Doing okay. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited because we just had a conversation with Mr. Glenn Borgman, formerly of the Minnesota Twins, Chicago White Sox, and briefly of the Cleveland Indians affiliate. We had a question that we wanted to ask him for a about a week and a half or so. Yes. But before we get to that, was there anything that you wanted to bring up? Yeah, well, first thing, I want to correct the record on an email answer from our most recent episode. This was a question prompted by Justin Turner and his success this season. He's an all-star now, although he is not a qualified player, qualified for the batting title because he missed some time. And so we got an email asking about the best non-qualified seasons in baseball history. So I did some quick research as we were recording that episode to try to find that answer. Turns out that is not a great idea to do research (laughs) while you're recording a podcast. So I missed my spreadsheet, got screwed up, and we got an email from a listener named Ethan who uh, pointed out that Hanley Ramirez had an excellent 2013 non-qualified season, and he was surprised that Hanley hadn't shown up on my list, and that's because my list was in error. So I now have the correct list, and the guy I said had the best non-qualified season, Gary Renicki with the Orioles in 1982, now falls all the way to seventh on the list. So it is no longer Gary Renicki and Bernie Carbo, but Ted Williams. Ted Williams in 1955 played 98 games, 417 played appearances, and was worth 7.1 war, what? according to <laughs> baseball reference. Which is uh, pretty amazing, and Ted Williams was pretty amazing, and I will say that as I read those erroneous results, I was sort of surprised that Gary Renicki and Bernie Carbo would be at the top of any all-time leaderboard. I was sort of expecting <laughs> a better caliber of player, not that they were bad players, but Ted Williams, I think, makes a, a little more sense. And the listener he emailed us about this, Ethan, just wanted to give an honorable mention to George Brett's 1980 season. He was the MVP. He was worth 9.1 Fangraphs war in 117 games. He had 515 plate appearances that year, so he did qualify by uh, 13, I suppose, but he had a, a 198 WRC plus and led the major leagues in war despite playing like 70% of a season. So that is pretty crazy, but he's not on this list because he did qualify. Second on the list behind Ted Williams is actually Javi Lopez, 2003 With the Braves, he was worth 6.8 baseball reference war. He just was incredibly great that year. He hit 328, 378, 687. That is 43 home runs in 129 games. He was a catcher, of course. So also after Javi Lopez, Rick Wilkins with the Cubs in 1993, David Wright, 2013 Mets, Johnny Mize, 1946 Giants, And then Mickey Mantle in 1962. There's some other Hall of Fame seasons right below Renicky and Al Simmons season. 2012, Joey Votto. 1996, Scott Brocious shows up at number nine. Anyway, that is the correct list. So consider the record corrected. I had forgotten that in 2013, Hanley Ramirez got a little bit of MVP support. After playing in his 86 games, yeah. he wound up uh-huh. uh, finishing eighth on the ballot. So good for him, I guess. He is uh, in a 33rd place tie on this list. <laughs> so it's not an all-time 
great non-qualified season, but very good. Also wanted to mention, did you see this little unwritten rules exchange with Carlos Correa and Roberto Asuna? This was one of the the weirder examples of an unwritten rule flare-up. This is the last out of the game on Thursday. Carlos Correa tapped back to Osuna on a full count cutter and then Osuna instead of making the throw immediately to first he sort of walked toward first uh, he took a few steps toward first as Correa was jogging down the line and then he threw over and Correa was mad about this he says I don't know what's so special about that throwing me a 3-2 cutter showing me up I go home, relax. Next time I face him, he better not give up a homer. So he's mad that Osuna walked toward first instead of just throwing. It was like like he wasn't treating the situation urgently enough because he was taking his time. The thing is, though, that if you watch the play, and I just sent you the video, Justin Smoke was slow to cover first, so he wasn't (laughs) there when Osuna got the ball. So I think that was part of it. And then Carlos Correa wasn't running really at all, which who cares? It was a three-run deficit and two outs in the ninth and no one was on. So I'd rather probably have Correa take it easy and not hurt himself trying to beat out a, a meaningless grounder. But point is, he was not at all rushing Osuna. He was barely jogging down the line. So this is just one of the the weird examples of how baseball players can annoy each other in ways that would not even occur to the rest of us, I don't think. So I hope that Grant is already blogging about this. And is he implying that Osuna in some way showed him up by throwing a 3-2 cutter? Yeah, this is like, well, I don't know, but I don't think he's implying that. I think he's saying that Osuna was showing him up and there's nothing special about a 3-2 cutter. Like that's, he didn't have anything to show him up about. But I think this is the pitcher equivalent of a slow home run trot, I guess. Like you're supposed to just put your head down and run around the bases. And if you field a grounder for the last out of the game, you're supposed to just throw the ball over there immediately. So this is... uh perceived as showing him up i would not have even listed this as a possible unwritten rules violation but <laughs> now we know the uh, the cutter happens to be a pretty new pitch for Asuna, so neat maybe i'll yeah. write about that next week he's uh, he's <laughs> sure. been very very good and now that the blue jays are trying not to be bad then he becomes a more interesting topic anyway i guess they're still yeah. kind of bad yeah so uh did you have anything no. So I had prepared a backup topic for this podcast uh-huh. just in case. Yeah. Just in case Len Borgman didn't want to talk about what was not a <laughs> wonderful game for uh-huh. him or his pitching staff. Yeah. But that topic has gone by the wayside. And I guess given that we have a maximum of about nine minutes left on this podcast, it's probably right. not worth bringing up. So I'll just hold it for next week. Was it an NL Central related topic? It was not an NL Central related topic. It was going to be a throwaway, boring all-star topic. So instead, ah, okay. we've hinted at this before, but by the way, everybody, the Brewers are leading the Cubs by four and a half games <laughs> of the National League Central. Now, you wrote yeah. about the Brewers recently. You wrote about the rebuild. And uh, I read it. It was wonderful. It usually is. And within the article, the theme was essentially how the Brewers were rebuilding building successfully without ever bottoming out, which is something that we saw the Cubs do and the Astros do and the Phillies are actively doing right now. Right. Not necessarily on purpose, but it is what's happening. And the Brewers are avoiding that by being in first place and mm-hmm. being in first place over a team that last year was, I think, hands down the best baseball team we've seen in a very long time. And it was coming back this year with a pretty similar roster, same core 
and the Cubs mm-hmm. are under 500. So this is partially about the Brewers and partially about the Cubs. But here we are. The Brewers are at four and a half games up. They've already played 88 of their 162 games. And so there's uh, at this point, there was a report Friday morning from John Morosi, who was on yeah. top of all trade Good related timing activity. On your part. Right, because yeah. you wrote your your Brewers post today, or I guess you probably wrote it yesterday and mm-hmm. and posted it today. And in it, you were talking about whether the Brewers should be or would be buyers, and you even mentioned Sonny Gray and Jose Quintana, right? Gray and Quintana, and so that was the the rumor this morning from Morosi that the Brewers are buyers, and they are even looking at those two guys. Yeah, Brewers are doing, in his words, background work on Quintana and Gray, which I don't know what background work is, but I assume that means looking at their statistics. <laughs> Yes, looking up their Fangraphs page, yeah, which confirming means that they are pretty good. We've uh, we've all done the Quintana and Gray background work. <laughs> it wasn't too hard to isolate those names because those are the two premium pitchers known to be available. You know, Julio Tehran is having a terrible year and Justin Verlander might not be available, but also he hasn't been very good. So there's not a whole lot of pitching out there. I don't think the Brewers are actually going to go out and, and make a big splash, but you could defend it if they did because their window now is open especially mm-hmm. if they added a, a number one or number two starter because they are competitive now. They are in front of the Cubs by a, a significant margin. They're only, what, two games, a game and a half behind the Rockies in the standings, mm-hmm. Yeah, which means they have a shot at the wild card as well. And so who are the teams that you'd think would be interested in a cost-controlled quality starting pitcher? There are the teams who are trying to win now and down the road, road and who have payroll concerns. Well, what team fits that more than the Brewers do? So... Mm-hmm. As I reflect, I still am skeptical that the Brewers would uh, yeah. would pay the price for a pitcher like that because they are still trying to build out their value rather than necessarily consolidate. But you could you could definitely make sense of it. You just kind of have to forget that the Brewers are a rebuilding baseball team. And if you just look at them at their position in the Sandys in isolation, you think, yeah, that team would make sense. Right. And they have prospects, obviously. They have the lowest payroll in baseball, so they could afford to add players. So yeah, in certain ways, it makes sense. But when I wrote that article about the Brewers rebuild, I fully expected them to, you know, stop winning shortly after I (laughs) I wrote that article. And I said in the article, I asked David Stearns, like, you know, are they changing their, their mindset or whatever? And at the time, he he indicated that they were not, but that was, what, a couple of weeks ago, and these were a couple of very big weeks for the Brewers when the Rockies were bad, the Cubs were bad. This is all kind of prompted by the Thursday win of the Brewers over the Cubs in a blowout so bad that John Jay had to pitch, and so, yeah, I mean, I still think the Cubs will likely win the division. I think that's still probably the safe bet, but it's a much less safe bet than it was until recently. And yeah, I mean, just reading some of the sentences in your article were like inconceivable just a a few (laughs) months ago, like when, when you said that on talent, the Cubs probably are the better baseball team. The idea that you would have to attach a probably to that statement at any time this year is just not something that any of us would have expected a few months ago. So Yeah. I mean, the Brewers are in a difficult position because they are currently without Chase Anderson, who's trained as oblique, and he's a, a pretty good starting pitcher, it turns out, and they don't have him, which means they have one good starting pitcher on the team right now. So they will need to make some sort of addition, but I think it's just absurd to think that they're going to, considering that even a few weeks ago, if I were asked about this, I would still think, yeah, they're going to go to the deadline and they're going to look to trade pieces like Ryan Braun or Matt Garza? Well, no, because see if they're going to want to keep them so that they can win. On uh, on Fangraphs, there are two types, I guess there are three, but 
there are two main types of playoff odds and therefore projections that uh, that we have. And one is based on the usual projections that we have, which are a blend of the steamer and zips projections. Whatever. If you look at those odds, then the Brewers are given a 16% chance at winning the division. And that's mm-hmm. based on the players' track records up until now. There's another tab. It's called Season to Date Stats Mode. And this is a projection that's based on how the players have actually performed this season through to this point. So this worries less about 2016 or 2015 or the preseason projections. This just looks at what's already happened. And if you look at the Season to Date Stats Mode, the Brewers are given a 58% chance to win the division. They're actually projected to win more games from here on out than the Cubs. They're mm-hmm. projected to win more games here on out than the Cardinals, who are also projected to be better than the Cubs. I don't know how to explain that, but whatever. Season to Date Stats Mode, it knows more than I do, I guess. So it's not a stretch to say that not only are the Brewers in first place, but they're in first place because they've played legitimately better baseball this year than the Cubs, which is mm-hmm. insane. And it gets kind of lost because the Dodgers have been so good and the Diamondbacks and Rockies have been. They were like the the surprises that got our attention first. And if it weren't mm-hmm. for them, I think we'd be making a bigger deal of the Brewers. But hey, look, there are the Brewers. The Rockies are sort of in free fall and the Brewers are trying to catch them. And they're also leading the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> In the National yeah. Central. This is amazing. Yeah. They're guaranteed to be leading the division at the All-Star break. Yes, this will be one of the more fun stories to monitor in the second half, presumably. And everyone's writing what's wrong with the Cubs articles. Matt Trueblood has a, a fun one up at Baseball Prospectus today about how you would fix the Cubs. And as he acknowledges, probably you don't need to fix the Cubs. And what you should do is just leave them alone and they'll play better. But he came up with this one strategy of like a a max defense lineup where you just start Hap in left field and Almora in center and you just go full defense and you have guys like Schwarber and Zobrist on the bench and then these guys come in later in the game and as Matt points out it kind of makes sense instead of having defensive replacements at the end of the game these days it makes sense to have defensive replacements at the beginning of the game because starting pitchers don't strike out as many hitters as relievers do so there are more balls put in play and then you would have these guys on the bench to to pinch hit and he pointed out that Ben Zobrist is the rare hitter who doesn't get better against starters the more times he faces them in a game. He's at his best in the first plate appearance, and he's also a a better hitter against relievers than starters, which is weird over a a career as long as his. Anyway, it's a fun idea. As Matt says, they probably don't need to do anything this drastic, but that would be one thing they could potentially do if they want to shake things up, as they say. So you have a chat to get to just uh, setting up this call that we're about to do here. This was last week's email show. Glenn Borgman came up because we were looking up the games in which the most stolen bases were allowed. And Glenn Borgman, who played in the big leagues from 1972 to 1980, was a starting catcher in a game. August 1st, 1976, A's versus Twins. He was the Twins starting catcher in that game. The Twins allowed 12 steals in that game, which is the most, I believe, since the 1911 Giants. And Eight different A's stole a base, which is also a record, at least since 1913, which is as far back as the play index goes. So we wanted to know how this could possibly happen. We cold called Glenn Borgman last week. He was not home at the time. He does know that we are calling now, but he does not know why we're calling. So it's at least a lukewarm call, I guess. So without further banter, let's get to Glenn. Stealing, Don't you chill on me I'm stealing back to my same old used 
Hello. Hi, is this Glenn? This is me. Hi, Glenn. This is Ben Lindbergh. How are you? How's it going? It's going well. I'm also joined here by my colleague, Jeff Sullivan. Uh, say hello, Jeff. <laughs> Good morning. Morning. So uh, I'll explain uh, why we wanted to talk to you. Is this still an okay time for you? Yeah. I okay. don't know. You guys wanted to do an interview or talk baseball or what's up? Uh, both, actually, I guess. Jeff and I do a show for a website called Fangrass. The The show is called Effectively Wild, and we do a few episodes a week just uh, talking about baseball. And we came across your name last week, and I will tell you why. We have a, a few other questions about your career also, if you're willing to get to those. But the reason why we wanted to call you was last week, and as soon as I start explaining this, maybe you'll know the rest, but last week the, the Cubs catcher Miguel Montero had a game where uh, seven bases were stolen against him and then he came out with some comments after the game and he said you know it's the he sort of blamed the pitchers a little bit for for not holding the runners and then it became a whole thing and the Cubs uh, designated him for assignment shortly after now he's with the Blue Jays but we were looking at games with a lot of stolen bases and we came across what I would imagine is a memorable game in your career although not a a representative one for you, but in 1976, August 1st, the first game of a doubleheader against the A's, those were those crazy A's who stole more bases than any team since 1911, and they stole 12 bases in that game, and you were the catcher for most of it, so we were wondering if you recall that game and if you could describe what that was like. Yeah, I recall the game, and uh, I caught uh, the first part of the game. I don't, I'm sure it was six innings or whatever, and then Weiniger caught the, ba- the back end of it, and uh, I think they pinched it for me. And Yeah, it went to extra innings, and then he he came in for the end and he gave up the stolen base too of course <laughs> but uh <laughs> it's not an easy thing you know you, you do the best you can back there and and the pitchers have to help you out of course but there's no no need to throw the pitchers under the bus i mean they do that's their mechanics you know certain guys are fast to the plate and certain guys are, are a little slower there's a lot of other things that could have been done to slow them up which i learned later mm-hmm. uh when gene mock became manager and uh of course, pitch out, throw the first, step off, change your timing to home plate, and then all those things. So, actually, you know, the catcher just does his mechanics and, and gets the ball down there the fast as he can. And the more you rush and the more you, you try to be in a hurry, that then the throws become wild. So, yeah. It's not a good feeling to be helpless behind the plate, but you know what? That's part of the game, and you just, you know, you just have to go along and do the best you can. And if you look at the record that you had in your career, you were a, a quite successful defensive catcher, of course. You set a record for fielding percentage, and you also threw out a greater percentage of base stealers than the league average over the course of your career. So was there something about that game in particular where things just got out of hand, or was that just the was that just the matchup where you're going against the best stolen base team in essentially baseball history? Yeah, I, I also wanted to mention, too, that the starter in that game was Pete Redfern, and he was also very successful over the course of his career in holding runners, or at least in not having runners steal bases successfully behind him. So it would seem like a battery of you two who aside from that game were very effective it it's hard to imagine that that could have been the game with the most stolen bases allowed since 1911 and so I'm, we're curious about how it happened i thought gold started the game what was it was redfern 
Yeah, it was Redfern. He pitched six and two thirds. And then it's Tom Johnson and Tom Bergmeier and, and Bill Campbell came in and got the win at the end. I don't know if you remember how that game played out, but I think the, the Twins came back three times and it went 12 innings and you scored three runs in the bottom of the 12th to win it. And and that was part of a, a five-game sweep of the A's that year. And that's pretty much what knocked those A's out of the playoffs or kept them out of the playoffs that, that series. Yeah, we had really good success in uh, that year against the A's for some reason. I think we beat them, what, 14 out of 18, if I remember right. Wow. And uh, but we we kind of had their number, but that just was a coincidence because they were very good. But I, you know what? It's just a com- combination. You know, it's just one of those days where you know I'm not sure if I remember exactly you know how the game went pitch by pitch. But you know they could have been running on pitches that are in the dirt. You know they could have been running. Uh, you know got a big jumps and, and and maybe it was partly my fault for throwing. You know wildly or or I'm not sure how it really went because it's quite a while ago. Yes, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's not a great feeling, but, you know, there's no sense. I mean, you didn't have to go to uh, make a big thing out of the pitchers. I mean, you know, could, he, he kind of went to extremes and then he apologized, which, you know, that wasn't uh, what should have been done. You know, he and I think a few other players weren't happy with his comments and whatever, but uh, he's with the Blue Jays now. And right. matter, matter of fact, the, the ironic thing about that is I coached John Gibbons in 1982 with the Mets and Shelby. <laughs> North Carolina. So John and I go way back and uh, I actually, you know, coached him on how to, you know, to to block balls and the footwork, the technique of of throwing guys out and, you know, how to call pitches and stuff like that. So it's kind of ironic thing that that happened like that. So he's with the, uh, he's with the Blue Jays now. So, and matter of fact, I did watch some of the game the other night when he caught and uh, they came back and Patantas had a little wild thing there for four walks in the eighth inning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, it was it wasn't I wasn't sure how many stolen bases, but that that's uh, nothing I'm not, something I'm not proud of. <laughs> yeah, the the Twins had five errors in that game as a team, and somehow you guys won. <laughs> it seems like if you allowed twelve stolen bases and and five errors, that's not a game that you would usually win. So it was kind of a crazy one. And actually, Redfern picked off two guys too. So <laughs> was. Uh... Did I have an error or did I? Yes, you had one. <laughs> oh, jeez. You guys are a bundle of joy here today. <laughs> yes, I know. We'll... You got any I got any positive thoughts on error or what? <laughs> Just that we won the game, I guess. Yeah, right. Five game uh, sweep. <laughs> so yeah. Well we, we just wanted to ask about that. We we do have some other questions, but it was just such a, a strange outlier. Like even those A's never had a, a game like that and you certainly never had a another game like that in your career. So we wanted to, uh, to see if there was a, it was a weird day and I guess it was like Bill North Cam- uh-huh. uh, was Campanaris on the team? Yeah, he stole three that day. Mm-hmm. Bill North, uh, Campanaris, uh, who else do they have? Dick Green, I guess. He, I don't know if he got any. Let's see. Yeah, Bill North had two. Campanaris had three. Don Baylor had one. Larry Lintz had one. Matt Alexander, who was their sort of dedicated pinch runner, I think he was the one who came in and, and stole off Weiniger. And then uh, Gene Tennis had one. Claudel oh, Washington had two. <laughs> Phil Garner had one. <laughs> so it takes a long time even just to read all the names. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think maybe two or three were double steals, maybe. I think that's what happened, too. That's what that mm-hmm. adds up. That's, you know, six right off the bat. Yeah. So, but yeah, it wasn't a great day. And like I said, uh, I remember Redfern though he he does, was a little slow so you know then I, of course it's it's everybody's fault it's not just the pitcher you know like I said I learned a lot more when Gene Mock came in and you know we did a lot better on the um, 
as far as the transfer of getting the ball to home plate and holding runners close and pitching out. He had a technique to pick up, pick up a little technique to the, out of the runner on what he did as far as giving his his attempting to steal second base, whether he fidgeted a little bit or he had a little a little technique to pick things up. So it was was nice to have that behind me and uh, and do it do it that way. You know, whether mm-hmm. let's see, seventy four was what close yet. Was it seventy four or five? Seventy six is the game we're talking about. Oh yeah, that's that's Gene. That that was Gene Mock too. I think he was the manager. I guess. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what happened that day. It didn't work. I guess whatever we were doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess when you were facing those A's, maybe you just knew coming in that you would have to be kind of at the top of your game, and that they would be testing you because they were just routinely doing things like this, if not quite to to this extent. And who was the manager, Tanner? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chuck Tanner. Yeah, he was. I remember Chuck. He was White Sox, and then A's or A's then White Sox. I, I think it was White Sox A's, if I believe right. Uh-huh. So, Jeff, you had a different question. Yeah. Question. <laughs> if we could, I guess, leave what would be an unpleasant memory behind and go into something <laughs> that might be a little more memorable but uh, complicated. There's a there's a certain picture I'm looking at, and you're running interference here. We've got Ron Jackson who's holding back Camilo Pasquale. There's a big brawl, 1978, between the Twins and the Angels. It seems that uh, Twins set off Bobby Gritch. I was wondering if you remember how that sort of came to materialize because we've got a a brushback pitch, but I don't have any sort of narrative for what might have led up to that. Uh, I think Roger Erickson was pitching mm-hmm. when Gritch was hitting, and then uh, he was coming inside a little bit, and ball got away, and then I, I'm not sure what, uh, I guess he was going toward first base, and I think it was ball four, actually, and I kind of didn't know if he was charging the mound or not. Of course, that's a live ball. Mm. And I went for the ball, and then I was waiting for him. To, you know, it was my job to stop him to go to go out to the pitching mat, go to get the pitcher. And I turned around; he wasn't going. And I turned around, got picked the ball, but looked, and there he he, he ran out to the home plate uh, from home plate to the pitcher's mound. And I guess you got me, I kind of like right behind him. I think I did see that picture. Yeah. Then uh, both benches came, and we had a big pile up on the mound. Yep, that was uh, he was with the Angels, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks like uh, Camilo Pasquale was uh, very desperate to get involved in this fight. I understand your role was to be the uh, the peacekeeper, but this was this is a brawl that you don't really see the same type of brawl anymore. I think players are a little more hesitant to throw their bodies around, throw their fists around. Rich laid in several. There were there were some haymakers. Uh, I think Rod Carew got a few punches at uh, at Rich's head. Uh, there was a there was a body check. Yeah, this one this one got a little out of control. Yep. I don't know why Camille was running all the way out there because he wasn't a very big guy. Um, but, yeah, he was – I remember him. He was the pitching coach. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was uh, what, just about both teams. All Everybody was 50 guys on the mound just about. <laughs> wow. Yeah. W- was there more bad blood of that sort in those days? Was that uh, – I guess was that more pre the fraternization that you see today or, or had that already started by then? Nah, it was – I don't think there was too much bad blood between the Angels and and the Twins. Uh, it just happened. Uh, I guess Bob had a little bit uh, got irritated with Roger a little bit, and you know he, he liked the ball out over the plate. So you know we tried to come inside a few times, and and I guess he we went inside too many times. So he decided to do something about it, I guess, and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. But Roger was, I think, it was his first or second year. I'm not sure. He was he was a pretty young guy then. Mm-hmm. 
I also wanted to ask you, you you came up with the twins when Harmon Killebrew and, and Tony Oliva were kind of at the tail end of their careers. So you, you got to play with them sort of on the, the downside when they were in their late 30s. But then you also got to play with Burt Blylevin and Rod Carew at the peak of their powers, really. And, and you caught Blylevin in 73 and 74, which I think statistically at least were his best seasons ever. And we're talking about one of the best pitchers ever. So I was hoping you could describe what it was like to, to work with him at that time. Yeah, I um, I came up in, I think it was July of 72. Mm-hmm. And my first game was in Comiskey in Chicago. And I think he started the second game and we won the game 2-1. And of course, he had that great curveball. And he later on when he I think he went to when he went to Pittsburgh, you know, he used I think a sinker a little bit more than when we had when I caught him in seventy four and five and actually he was a better pitcher for Pittsburgh because, you know, he didn't have to strike everybody out. He got a few ground balls on first pitches because he threw a sinker. But his curveball was unbelievable. You know, he just it's hard not to just keep calling curveballs because, you know, nobody could hit it and um he's just such a, a gamer and a winner. And, you know, he gave you about 200% every time he went out there. And, and you could see his, his training and spring training. He was always the first in sprints, the first to run around the field. And, you know, it was a pleasure to catch him. And, and uh, it's too bad that, uh, you know, you couldn't catch a guy like that every night. You know, it was just such a pleasure. Him and uh, Jerry Kuzman I caught. Had, I was lucky enough to catch him when he came over in the Orozco trade. Mm. And Jerry was just, I mean, you could sit in an aluminum chair behind home plate and, and not even move it. That's how, that's how control wise he was. And, you know, he threw maybe six, eight sliders a game. And every time he wanted to throw a slider, he needed a double play. And out of the six, eight sliders, he maybe got three double plays out of it. So it was, he just so experienced. So, you know, it's just very, very nice to catch a guy like that. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about what the perception of Blylevin was at the time, because if you look at some of the advanced stats that we have today, you look at wins above replacement, that sort of thing. They say that Blylevin was the best pitcher in the league in 1973, in part because he threw 325 innings, which is just crazy in, in retrospect. But he finished seventh in Cy Young voting that year. Of course, he only ever made two all-star teams. He never finished higher than third in Cy Young voting. And then after his career, when he was on the Hall of Fame ballot, there was you know a long battle to, to get him in between people who were looking at some of these more advanced stats that said, oh, he was incredible. He was one of the best pitchers ever. And people who were maybe looking at his win-loss total, which was, you know, good, but maybe not good enough to get him in on, on an early ballot. So what did you guys think of him at that time? Were you thinking this is, you know, the best pitcher in baseball? This is on the short list of the best pitchers in baseball? Or or did you not think of him that way? Did he not have that reputation in the moment? No, I thought he, he definitely had the reputation and he, and he and he had the background. And you, everybody knew, you know, when you were going and you were the other team and who was pitching, Blylevin was pitching, you knew you were in for quite a battle. So I, I, I just thought it, it maybe it just took a little longer, um, maybe being from Minnesota. You know, sometimes being from Minnesota, you don't get the recognition when you're playing in New York or Boston or yeah. L.A., but but uh, maybe that had a little bit to do with it. And uh, But you knew in the long run that it was going to happen. So and I'm so glad it did. And uh, like I said, I was fortunate to catch a lot of games for with him. And how many shutouts did he have? He had a lot of shutouts. Yeah, that year, he 73. That yeah, he uh, he led the majors with nine shutouts that year. Nine shutouts. Yeah, that was, you know, Phil Roof and I were, were the receivers. And uh, 
I think Mitterall was there for some time, and, and Randy Hunley, I'm not sure how it broke it down, but, uh, you know, we always were looking for that shutout, and, and, you know, of course he was too. And, and nowadays, forget about shutouts. You know, you don't see anything like that because they're out of the game in right. the seventh inning and, and mm. unless the pitch count is, yeah. you know, right around 95 or 105 or something like that, they don't go much. You don't see 125, 130 pitches like you used to see. Yeah, he started 40 games that year, and he finished 25 of them. <laughs> Which is amazing. Yeah, but I think when he went to Pittsburgh, though, he 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 sunk the ball and he, he developed a little slider and change up. So I think he became a, a even better pitcher. I don't know what the records were in Pittsburgh, but you know when he went there and they won the series, and you know we are family and all that. Uh, mm. You know I I watched and. And I noticed that, you know, sinking the ball because he usually throw four seam fastball curveball. And then he always worked on the mother two pitches, but he never, you know, when he come down to the nitty gritty, you know, you went with the curveball or his four seam fastball. And then he developed that other thing. And, you know, then you could go seven, eight innings and not have 120 pitches. You know, you'd have 85, 90 pitches, which is that's the way you got to do it. And. And, uh, you know, being a catcher, you know, you got four, four pitches to work with is a lot better than, than two. So, and I think maybe he saved his arm, too, not throwing all them curveballs later on in his career. Mm-hmm. You talk about catching Blylevin and, uh, and of course, Kuzman, who could just put the baseball in a teacup. And then they're, they're those are pitchers who are going to have better command of the ball than, than other pitchers on the staff. And so I was curious what your experience was like. As a catcher, of course, you're you're trying to catch pitches as, as firmly as you can. You're trying to get the best strike zone you can. But how frustrating was it to catch a pitcher who might have been a little more wild? How much more difficulty would you have had trying to sort of get those borderline calls sort of a... Uh, at the bottom or or the edge of the strike zone. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes not. You know, the part of being a receiver is that you don't want to be crossed up, of course. But certain guys, you know, if you're throwing a slider, the sliders are all you know in on the lefty, away from the righty. When you're sitting out there, you know, looking for a slider on the outside, and he throws it down and in, and the backs up, or you know, if they're all, if they're in the dirt or over people's heads, and and just. It's just hard to get comfortable back there and, and know, you know, you have to try to bring a pitcher along. You know, sometimes in the beginning of the game, he won't have his curveball or slider. And then all of a sudden, the fourth, the third or fourth inning, you know, he'll throw one and then he'll he'll find it, you know. So now, you know, it becomes part of your repertoire to have the slider, you know, into the program. Where before, every time you throw a breaking ball as a hitter, too, if you know you can't get the breaking ball over, of course, you're sitting on the fastball. It makes it a lot easier, but... You know, it's it's. There's a few pitchers that you know you have to kind of guide along a little bit and, and build them up, and there's a few you have to kick in the behind a little bit. So, you know, it, it's a lot easier if they're if they're kind of outside half, inside half, you know, or up or down or whatever. It's a lot easier to, to catch the ball and know what you're doing because before mm-hmm. you go into a series, you know, you always get the line up and how you want to present each pitcher with the hitter you know certain guys like certain pitches in certain areas so you try to learn the lineup and you know had it mock was always good at that he'd always give you a, a sheet of you know you go into kansas city there'd be a whole here's the here's what i want done you know to brett to mayberry to you know guys like that well, I mentioned Carew, and, and he was in the news this week because Ichiro just passed his hits record for most hits by a, a player born outside the United States. And you were a teammate of Cruz in 77 when I think he was probably the best player in baseball that year, and he made that run at 400. What was it like watching him day in and day uh, out at, at that point in his career? Yeah, it was like a, a real 
great experience to watch him hit the ball and, and run. He just looked like he wasn't even giving in an effort, but he'd be down the first 3.8 seconds or something. And, <laughs> and he, wherever you put him, he could play first base, second base. He probably put him in the outfield. He could play there. And it was a great experience to be on with Rod on the team. And I just noticed he threw a first pitch out in Minnesota after his heart transplant. Mm-hmm. And he's had a lot of troubles and hopefully, you know, he's straightened out now and he'll be on a mend to, to live on another long life. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to ask you, uh, cause you were with the twins when Lyman Bostock came up and I wanted to see what you remembered of him, what he was like as a, a teammate. And, and he really, you know, made such huge strides as a player just in those first couple of years that you played with him. Of course, people have always wondered what he would have gone on to do as a, as a player, but you saw him come up and, and get established. So I was wondering what you remembered of that. Yeah, he was, he was like the, uh, the next Rod Carew. He came up <laughs> and used the whole field. He hit the ball, you know, left field, center field, right field. He could run, played a great center field. And, um, you know, he always wanted to learn. He always, you know, talked to Rod about hitting and talked to Tony Oliva about hitting. And, you know, it's a shame what happened to him. And, you know, I don't know what happened really, the details of that. But, uh, you know, he, he was going to be, he could possibly be another Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to ask you, the pitchers that you had the most at-bats against in your career were Frank Tanana and Nolan Ryan, and so not not easy assignments. And this there's, was, uh, there's two beauties for you. Yeah, this was <laughs> pre-injury Tanana mostly also, so he was uh, you know unhittable at that point in his career. So what was your strategy against Nolan Ryan? You, you faced him 32 times, or, or at least you had 32 at-bats against him. Was there anything you could go in looking for, or were you just... <laughs> hoping for the best. Well, no, I did pretty good, but I hit like 280 off him or something. Yeah, like you 10 did. 10 for 32 or something. Yeah, you did well. Yeah, I he struck me out, I think, 10 times also. But Yes, uh, that's right. The thing about Nolan was, you know, the fastball, you know, sometimes these guns nowadays, and I, I look at the Yankees, and they got Batantis throwing 100, and Chapman 100, and 100, 102, and they're hitting the ball. They're pulling the ball down a third base like. I don't know. Sometimes I have to question these guns. I don't know. They just, <laughs> I mean, nobody threw harder than Nolan Ryan. I mean, how hard I don't do you think, think he, he threw? threw a, I don't think he threw a hundred. No. So uh, whatever, that's another story. But see when Nolan, the fastball, I mean, it was great, but that's, you know, you weren't worried. You were worried a little bit about it, but the curveball and the changeup. I mean, he come with a two, two changeup with the same arm speed as a fastball. And you were like, come on, you know, it's like, but luckily for me, I, he fell behind a few times on me and, you know, trying to get me out with the breaking ball and change up. He fell behind a few times and I was lucky enough to get a, get some hits off him with the fastball and maybe I hung a few change ups or something. The curveball was almost the Bly Levin curveball. That, that's what killed you. You know, that's, that's the part where he had all them strikeouts because, I mean, major league hitters are going to hit fastballs and, when he throws two two curveball two two changeup with that arm speed and the grunt, I mean, you know, that's that's like overpowering and it's like out of this world. And then Tanana, I got called up. I was up seventy two and I went back to Tacoma seventy three and I got called up for the last month and we finished the season in California or it was we were up there in September and you know here I am getting called up and who was pitching? Well, we got Singer. Tanana and Ryan. I said, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, so, but Frank, he threw the ball 
oh, he was he was like kind of like a sail guy, you know, a slinger mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. good curveball over the over top curveball though, not a not a like a slurve like sail throws, but and then he hurt his arm and uh, you know he still then he learned how to pitch, but yeah, yeah, I faced those guys a lot of times. I remember I remember off I hit off Splitorf a lot. I, yes, well, when Weiniger came along, then I was more of a when I played, I played mostly against the lefty, even though he was a switch hitter, but. Gene got me in the game, you know, and one you got to give Weininger a break once in a while. So, <laughs> yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about that, not to to return to a, a negative note, but uh-huh. in '76, the the season we started with, that was the year that Weininger came up, and he was 20 years old, and he had played at a ball the year before, so that was a big jump. But he had a a 470 something on base percentage, and I guess he was a, a top prospect at the time and finished in the the runner up in rookie of the year voting. And so suddenly, you know, you were the veteran, but there's this new hotshot kid catcher in camp. I guess was that a a difficult transition for you to to be kind of relegated to to backup duty at that point? Well, I had a pretty good year in '74, and in '75, I. I got run over there. I had a, I had a not, not a great year. And then he came along, and then Gene came along. Mock came along at the same time, 76. Yeah. Mock was, you know, lefty, righty, righty, lefty, you know, whatever. He liked to platoon people, and, you know, Weiniger was a switch hitter, so he didn't have to platoon him. He was 20 years old, and he came up, and Gene batted him fourth between Carew and Heisel, so <laughs> I'm batting ninth behind Louis Gomez. So we're <laughs> so you know he he did a great job with the kid, and and Butch was a good player, and I was sitting there, and I'm like, you know, what are we doing here? But what can you do? You know, you you do the best you can, and you play, and mm-hmm. but he he was a good player, Butch. He he really uh, he came around quick, and Gene Gene is. Uh, Gene Mock was a good manager, and it's a good good to be a rookie when Gene's around because he, you know, he he lays things out for you. He everything was laid out, and you know, and he did his homework on the other team, and he had a lot of experience, so he was a good manager. You were drafted twice in uh, in 1969 by the Giants and the Pirates. I assume you just elected not to sign, then you. Uh... He went to uh, University of South Alabama, set some hitting records that I believe still actually stand at the school. Miami Day, two years in Florida, junior college. Mm-hmm. Then I got drafted by the Giants after my second year. Uh, I'm not sure what round, seventh or eighth round or whatever. Sixth, sixth round. Sixth round. And Stanky came along and, you know, he he looked at me. We were in Braden in Florida playing in some school over there. And uh, I kind of, I, I knew the name, but. I had to go look up the history a little bit, you know, about with Eddie and everything. But he said, you know, I want you to come to South Alabama. And then I'm saying, South Alabama, where are we going? <laughs> it's whatever. <laughs> but uh, it it was a good move. It was one of the best moves I ever made. And went over there, played for him. And then I got drafted again the following year by the Pirates. But I think that was a mistake because I, I wasn't, I had to have four years of school or 21 and I was neither. Mm. So I'm not <laughs> sure if that was back then how that worked, but uh I think that was kind of like in between, you know, that age limit where then it wasn't back then you had to be 21 or finish your fourth year or something. I'm not sure. I'm not sure of that one. But anyway, then I got drafted by um, the Twins in secondary phase, which is yeah. players that had already been drafted. And uh, I think it was like ninth pick in the first round. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's the fifth pick, something like that. Yeah, it was the ninth pick. I was curious about that because you were drafted uh, so high in 1971, and then within a calendar year, you were playing pretty regularly in the major leagues. And now I know in 1973, you you spent some more time back down in in Tacoma. But was that was that more commonplace back in in the day, or did you just kind of fly through the minor leagues? Because even a guy like Buster Posey wound up spending a year and a half or even two years in the minor leagues more recently before he got established in the majors, but you did not take that time at all. Yeah, I was I was pretty lucky, but like I always tell everybody, you know, if you sign out of high school, you're going to spend most of the time, you're going to spend three, four, four years in the minor leagues. And, and um, if you sign out of college, I think that gives you like maybe a two-year minor league experience because college baseball is pretty good, went down south. So when I came, I signed and then I went to A-ball, and then Dempsey was actually in Charlotte in Double A. So I spent two months in Wisconsin Rapids and got called up to Charlotte because Dempsey had to go into the Marine, into the reserves. He was in the National Guard. So he had to go away two weeks. So they wanted me to fill in for him. I was doing pretty good in April. So I went up to meet the team in uh, the Charlotte in Memphis. We met the team in Memphis and actually played and won the whole Southern League in 1971. And that was just like unbelievable. I couldn't believe the caliber of baseball and Charlotte and double-A baseball was like unbelievable. I thought I went to the big leagues of Mayball. So then in the following year, I'm figuring, well, I'm going to go back to double-A and Dempsey's going to go to triple-A. And he made the big club and they sent me to triple-A. And then things didn't work out. And then I think they, they swapped us. Rick went down to Tacoma and I came up, I think, July 1st of 72. And I did okay. I mean, I hit like, I think it was 230-something. And I didn't, I didn't throw the ball well. I I made quite a few errors. I think made 12 errors, I think, in three months. So they figured it was too early for me or something. I don't know. So I went back down in 73 and spent the whole year there. I came up in September. And then 74, was they got Hunley, Randy Hunley. You remember when he came over? I don't know. Well, you don't remember. But if you could look at the stats, he came over and they traded Mitterwall for Hunley in 74. Then Hunley hurt his knee, and then I became the number one catcher in '74. And they got rid of Hunley in '70 after '74, and they was Phil Roof and myself in '75. And then that I didn't have a great year in '75, and then that's when they brought Weiniger in '76. The last thing I wanted to ask, and I've never really gotten a clear answer to this, and I don't know exactly how the umpire relationship was in the 70s, but did you have any particular feelings about the umpires who would make physical contact and lean on you as a catcher versus those who would uh, not be so hands-on? You mean like put your hand on my back and stuff? Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, there was a couple guys who, well, back then we had the balloon too, so you had a, you know, some guys had the inside protector and some guys used the, used the outside protector. A few guys you could feel, you know, leaning against you with the. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't bother me. I, I don't think it was a, was a problem. We got. I got. We got along most of the umpires. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any, you know, umpires that were everybody yelled and screamed at or whatever. But um, <laughs> it was, you know, it. There it, it, there was nobody that leaned against me that had any any change in my stance behind home plate or any any restrictions or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate your your time. We just we saw your name because of that uh, one game, but then when we looked you up, we came up with a bunch of other questions. All right, well, nice talking to you guys, and uh, yeah, we'll look for uh, look for the article with the twelve stolen bases with my name on it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> all right. Make sure you put Weiniger's name there too. He was a culprit too. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, no, he was. He gave up one. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll talk to you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.
All right. That was fun. A little more background. Those mid-70s A's, of course, had been extremely successful, a a dynasty under Charlie Finley. But then they had a lot of their players leave or get traded because free agency started. And Finley either couldn't keep them or knew that they didn't like him and that they wouldn't stay. So that year, they just stole a crazy number of bases, 341 which again is the most by any team in the modern era other than the 1911 Giants who had six more than that. But they never again did what they did on that day, August 1st, 1976. They did have a nine-steal game, which also came against the Twins, actually, but that was with Phil Roof starting behind the plate. They had an eight-steal game and a couple of seven-steal games. I didn't even have the heart to tell Glenn that he also went 0-3 in that game at the plate, grounded it to a double play, although he did walk, and the A starting pitcher was Vita Blue, so no shame in that. I have a quote from then-owner of the Twins, Calvin Griffith, who said he had never seen a game like that one. Quote, you don't expect to win a game when the opposition steals 12 bases and you make five errors. I've never seen a team come back three times from two-run deficits and then win the game with three runs like we did in the 12th. The big crowd, 22,921, proved to me that this area still wants baseball. All we have to do is win, and we'll start drawing again like we did in the earlier years. The enthusiasm of this crowd was as good as any I've ever seen at the Met. The standing ovation they gave Tony Oliva and the team after we won the game in the 12th was very encouraging. And Charlie Finley, the A's owner, said of that series in which the A's were swept in five games. When you're a fan, you can laugh at this, but when you're an owner, all you can do is cry. The way they played against Minnesota, losing all five games was a disgrace. I can't believe it happened. A lot of that info, by the way, comes courtesy of my friend Stephen Goldman, writer for FanRag, who helped me with research. If you're not listening to Steve's podcast, The Infinite Inning, you should. It's a really great baseball show. So I'm glad we could talk to Glenn. He, by the way, worked at Meadowlands Racetrack for 26 years, retired not too long ago, lives in New Jersey, spends a lot of time with his family, has a grandkid who's a catcher, so maybe we'll see another Borgman in the big leagues someday. So our interviews this week, Constructing Coors Field, Beat Baseball, and Glenn Borgman. Very effectively wild week. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Steve Simpson, Chip Holden, Chris Rupar, Michael Sweeney, and Mike Miller. Thanks to all of you. Quick reminder, Jeff and I have a live podcast taping coming up a month from today in Brooklyn at the Bell House, 7 p.m. on August 7th. You can and are encouraged to buy tickets now, which you can do at thebellhouseny.com. I will link to the page in the blog post at Fangrass and in the Facebook group. Tickets are only $15, and we have promo codes. If you use the promo code the Ringer or the promo code Fangrass, it will save you $5, which is a third of the ticket price, so it will only cost you $10. I don't think you can combine the promo codes, so you can just choose your favorite site, I suppose. But if you're in the area, please come. I'm sure it will be fun. And tickets are already selling, so if you know you want to come, reserve a spot now. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. Keep your questions and comments coming for me and Jeff via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. We will talk to you all next week. I'm sorry for the call.